everyone. Welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. I'm Finn Arne Jorgensen. And we are happy to welcome today Matthew Kelly, who will be who is professor of modern history at Northumbria University in the UK. And he will be presenting his book, The Women Who Saved the English Countryside, uh, which came out with Yale University Press in 2022. So Matthew, we'll give it over to you to talk about the book. Great. Um, thanks. Thanks very much to both of you. Thanks very much for asking me um, to join, to be the 89th person um, to to be talking about the book on this this podcast. Um, I feel I should start by saying where I am because it feels strange to me. I'm, I'm not actually at home. I'm in a small holiday let that I really like down in West Devon. Um, and on the screen, I look very grey and gloomy, um, but actually outside it is the most gloriously sunny Devon um, day. And if the windows were open, you'd hear birds and sheep and um, things like that. So it's pretty um, idyllic here. And it seems quite a fitting place to be talking about um, a book, which in many ways it is about the kind of politicisation, I suppose, over time of a certain notion of, of, of the um, English countryside that celebrates, the, I suppose, celebrates the landscapes created by agriculture, particularly cattle and sheep farming, um, but also how that intersects over time um, with, the with the politics um, of access. And, um, and I, I came to this subject through, well, I've, I published a book uh, in 2015 that was a fairly kind of lengthy, um, history of modern Dartmoor, Dartmoor since the late um, 19th century. And those of you that don't know, Dartmoor um, is a large granite upland in the southwest um, of, of England, quite um, largely associated with sheep and cattle and pony um, grazing, perhaps most famous as the setting of Conan Doyle's um, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, and in looking at this, this landscape over about a 200 year period and the way in which it became politicized um, as um, a place, one of the key figures in the latter stages of the book uh, was somebody called Sylvia Sayer, who was the longtime chair of the Dartmoor Preservation Association and a really formidable um, activist. Uh, she was in her prime, I suppose, if you like, between the designation of the park in 1951 then um, and through to her retirement of chair, as chair of the organisation in the early 70s. So for this sort of crucial kind of 20 year period when the park was becoming um, it, you know, established um, and, and that gradual period whereby what begins as a really quite a weak designation, uh, in some ways national parks in Britain um, are, certainly they began their life as essentially a planning designation um, that then over time accumulate additional um, powers um, but, you know, I think it is always worth saying, if there might be a bit of an international audience for this, is that national parks in the UK are not state-owned, they are not publicly owned, almost all of the land in the national parks is either privately owned or, or it's owned um, by large, I suppose, semi-public organisations like, like, the, like the National Trust. So when we're thinking about national parks in the, in the UK context, we're not thinking about the kind of North American um, model. Um, of of the park or one that indeed that's prevalent um, elsewhere in in Europe. Anyway, Sylvia Sayer was this really formidable kind of political activist, and around the time that book <laughs> came out, there was 
uh, a major conference at an agricultural, leading agricultural college. And, and the plenary was advertised with a photograph of 10 men, um, some in lumberjack shirts and some in suits, but nonetheless, all definitely men. And I was very struck by this. And I was also struck by the way in, in which women's voices were more and more being heard on debates about landscapes through, particularly through um, social media. And I'm thinking here, not I'm thinking partly about activists, but partly about, you know, if it, professional conservationists um, and and so on. And I was very aware of, of Sayer at this this time. And I just thought, you know, there's just such an obvious it was such an, there was such an obvious problem with this, this, these 10 men in, you know, lumberjack shirts or suits, depending on, you know, how they wish to present themselves in an academic setting. Um, and so that, that's got that's got me thinking about where Sayer fits. Um, and I thought, well, one of the things I think was quite surprising about his, the history of modern Britain and the environmental history of modern Britain is the story, if you like, of the development of landscape designation for various reasons. Um, the historiography of, the, of that is not nearly as developed as it is in other settings, most obviously the US, the US one. I mean, it's quite hard to find an account that takes you, if you like, from some we could argue about what when the beginnings are, of course, we're historians, but you know, a notional beginnings through, you know, to to the present. And um, so I thought, well, why not have a crack at telling that story? But I'll tell it through the lives of of four women activists. Because I think the other challenge um that comes with telling that that story is that it can become despite the sort of political, if you like, you know, significance of the story, it can become, and in, in the hands of some historians, has become a slightly sort of dry march through a sort of institutional, you know, history where we see the development of statutory frameworks and the work of civil servants and the extraordinarily significant work of, of um of preservationist, particularly, and then later more like ecologically orientated conservationist organisations, but you write these sort of institutional histories, and um, and so I sort of wanted to, in a sense, think, well, if we approach this in a more biographical way, can we, in a sense, tell that story, try to establish what that narrative looks like, um, but through these, through some sort of charismatic um, individuals, and. I feel I ought to have a much more considered set of ideas about gender history to sort of justify my decision to say, well, let's do it through um, for for women. But 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 I think partly I think I could justify it partly through, in a sense, a rather straightforward set of historical claims that to which gender is important but sits alongside other kind of, if you like, explanations. Um, and, and I think we can only get to that if I actually just briefly talk about the four women I look at. So Sylvia Sayer is the fourth of the four, and I focus on her career in that kind of key period in the 1950s, 1960s, into the early 1970s. Um, but prior to her, I look at Octavia Hill, who was an extraordinarily important um, figure, uh, active in the sort of last third or so of the 19th century, up until just before the First World War, when she dies. Um, and, you know, there's a significant historiography uh, dedicated to um, her, her work as part of a broader understanding of 
public moralists um, in the Victorian um, period. And the, the work, my work builds quite a lot on that work. And then I look at a very, very famous person, but a person who has, who has attracted surprisingly little attention from historians, and that's Beatrix Potter who was one of the crucial figures um, for the National Trust, particularly in the Lake District in the 20s and 30s. And in a way, Hill and Potter provide me with uh, my examples of landscape preservationists um, absolutely committed to um, enhancing, deepening, expanding rights of public access um, to the countryside, but within what I would broadly see as a philanthropic and liberal um, political framework, in that both are strongly, strongly opposed to, um, to uh, the state intervening in this stuff. This is down to kind of individuals, philanthropic work, uh, to try to um, protect for, you know, the people broadly understood, you know, access to the countryside and protect beautiful places and it's very important the way this, this these two themes become enmeshed together preserving the beauty of the English countryside it necessarily I think becomes bound up with preserving public access and this is the way in which we can see them as modern they're trying to establish in a sense a set of kind of citizen-based rights this is very much a kind of rights-based um, agenda for Octavia Hill there's no question that it is it derives partly from her acute social consciousness conscience but also from her religious um outlook you know the the beauties of the natural world are god's creation to to which all you know all which if you like it is part of the patrimony of humanity um and to deny access to that um is in a sense a form of sin um and um and 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 I, one of the things i think that's very interesting is the the sort of very her very her spiritual if you like or religious language has in many ways been secularized of course over time but we still talk about you know the if if you like the uh refreshing um life enhancing health and happiness is a phrase you hear a lot in a british context that access in quite spiritual even if formally if you like you know secularized um um terms um and then just sort of briefly to finish this kind of summary, I suppose, with, with the two uh, post-war figures, here we see the shift towards a more statist um, role. And, and although, you know, as, although, as I've already said, national parks in the UK context are not about the state taking possession of property, um, what they do involve is, um, what they do involve is the state imposing quite significant controls over how land is used and indeed legislation is introduced that empowers new national park authorities to uh, negotiate new um, rights of access and so on. And that's an ongoing, an ongoing um, process. So the third of my women is somebody called um, Pauline Dower, who was the longest serving um, woman member of the National Parks Commission. She's, she's the deputy for a long period of time. She's a very interesting figure because she's largely overlooked by historians, but she was in fact a Trevilian. She was of the family of liberal and socialist historians and states persons. Um, so, you know, she's a descendant of the historian Macaulay. Her uncle was GM Trevelyan, probably the most influential uh, popular slash academic historian of the first half of the 20th century in Britain 
Um, and her husband, who dies of tuberculosis in the late 1940s, um, drafts the, the Dow report, which leads to this piece of legislation, which establishes the park system um, in, in the UK. So she comes from this very, very rather grand, frankly, family, enjoys incredibly privileged upbringing in that peculiar way that happens in post-war Britain. In some cases, she enters into public service and serves on the commission that establishes the park system. And then, as I already suggested, Sylvia Sayer is in a way her mirror, except she's the lobbyist, the activist, absolutely committed to the park ideal, but in a sense, constantly there to ensure that, that they adhere to you know, the principles that she thinks that the national park system should uphold. And just as a concluding point, um, uh, I think that what, I think this period, on the on the one hand, you've got this sort of voluntarist, liberal, philanthropic tradition. On the other hand, we've got this this sort of more statist one. They function quite happily um, in parallel. And I think what makes that period, 1870 to 1970, fairly coherent, at least in terms of talking about the four, is that their judgments are largely cultural and aesthetic rather than ecological. And, you know, it's obviously a commonplace in the sense in environmental history to say something very significant happens around 1970. And some people would argue, you know, this is the birth, as you know, you know, this is the birth of environmental politics or simply our conception of what is environmental politics changes um, in that period. But it, and what's crucial to uh, what's crucial, I think, certainly in a UK context, but in many others, of course, is what changes in that time is if most of these, the four women are all concerned about what they see as, if you like, the sort of forces of modernity, urbanisation and suburbanisation, the uh, location of major infrastructure and stuff in beautiful rural places, reservoirs, power stations, all of the, all of the kind of, uh, if you like, the material precipitates of rural modernity. Um, what really happens, of course, like after 1970, is the debate starts to be about agriculture and agricultural intensification. And, and this, to, my, to the four women I look at, this, the idea that farmers are the problem would have been quite alien to them in that their way of thinking is that agriculture produces the charismatic landscapes that they wish to see protected and that they wish to see public access um, increased so there you go that's a sort of you know whistle stop tour of what the book kind of talks about thanks this is great i think there's a lot of things we can uh talk about here um and yeah i like you bringing up uh beatrix potter as one of your women because we're going to see the exhibition on her in, in london uh in just a week and a half so we're uh, excited about that. So but I thought we could start with that, with your, your actors and your choice of uh, gender as a lens. I mean, also the, the biography as a lens, but in particular the gender. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm curious about, do the women you write about talk about gender uh, in their work and how do they do that? Um, good question. Octavia Hill, absolutely does and i mean she's she's a really interesting figure because those of you who know um the, the the sort of historiography about 19th century britain particularly late 19th century britain will be familiar with the argument about separate spheres and you know the, the degree to which 
men and women according to a, I suppose a Victorian ideal existed within you know separate spheres broadly speaking the public sphere and the domestic sphere now of course lots of historians have come along and written very very sophisticated stuff which 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 challenges the idea that that was in in any way a description um, of Victorian society or if it was a description of Victorian society it was a sort of rather narrow um, upper sort of upper middle class upper class section of, of Victorian society where it was possible to maintain separate spheres because of you know social and economic uh, you know power um, but Octavia Hill is committed to that idea idea. Idea. So, for instance, in in uh, during the suffrage debates, women's suffrage debates just before the First World War, she writes, you know, a rather notorious long letter to the Times, whereby she gives one of the clearest articulations of separate spheres of male and female qualities and why they must be protected, um, and that when you know if women move into male spheres, you lose, you know, crucial qualities that make for a happy, healthy society. And you know, she's writing. Um, in old age, and these are views which are which are increasingly un, unfashionable, but she she clearly holds to them. At the same time, I think what's very interesting about her, and, it, and we need to get beyond that sort of that sort of famous intervention, is to see how how she broadened what constituted the domestic sphere. So sure, she was opposed to women being involved in con, in, in conventional politics. Um, but she absolutely, in a sense, in a st established new forms of what we would now see as public work, philanthropic work um, for um, women. Um, and, and so on the one hand, she manages to sort of sustain that, that notion, whilst on the other hand, um, she actually broadens the, if you like, the range of occupations that women could um, engage in. And working for you know, an institution like the National Trust, which she helps co-found in the 1890s, for her is, is consistent with um, working within, if you like, the female sphere, because this is this, the, the, what the National Trust provides is a set of, of what, well, uh, of, um, of nurturing, I suppose, of nurturing consequences, right? Being able to go to these beautiful places and so on and so forth is, is part of that. So you see there the way in which her politics of, of, of access to the land and, and so on, she manages to, in a clever way, demonstrate to be consistent with her sort of separate spheres thinking. But she's also really significant, I think, in her consciousness, her, her consciousness of the particular needs of women. Um, and, you know, in the, in the 19th century, and it's familiar to this day, you know, a lot of um, access politics was, was quite a kind of masculine sphere and it was orientated toward upland landscapes, mountains um, and places where you needed, you know, quite a, you know, various forms of sort of both physical prowess and independence to get to. And her sense that access to green space is not just a right a God-given right, but also a necessity for a healthy life. I mean, she was particularly conscious of the needs of elderly people and the needs, you know, of young mothers. And she wrote very affectingly about, about that little bit of relaxation that a mother might feel, you know, sat in on a sunny day in green space with her children, you know, playing nearby when she had, you know, she was less alert, less, less worried, everybody was more you know, relaxed. And it's part of that Victorian 
um, concern about what we now call stress <laughs> and I suppose the kind of you know mental health costs of living in urban places and so on and Octavia Hill had a very acute understanding um, of that. So she provides in a way the strongest overt articulation of, 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 a, of, of if you like a kind of gender politics and a gendered outlook on what she, she was um, doing. I think with the other three it's more that, that they have a consciousness of that they were acting on the whole within a sort of a male sphere. Um, Sylvia Steyer says this quite directly. She says it was vital that she always had a very strong grasp of the detail of a problem um, and did not present it in a way, you know, that as in her words, that was um, emotional. And, and, and she was often dealing um, with, you know, local councillors, businessmen, all of that sort of thing, people that she kind of projected as being commonsensical and materialistic, pragmatic. And if she was to have arguments with them, she had to sort of um, compose herself in, in, in a way that, that didn't play to what she regarded as their stereotype in a sense of, 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 of her. Um, and I think to some extent that plays out with all four. Um, and the final thing I would say about this is that one of the things I think that is interesting about them is because they are working in a broadly, in broadly male context. They're all broadly speaking of, of you know, middle and upper middle classes. These are, these women are you know are are educated, fairly privileged or very privileged. Um, in some cases, and they bring some of that sort of the confidence that comes from that class background um, with them. But I think there was a way in which they were not clubbable in the same way that some men were. You know, it was, I wouldn't say it was, it, well, it was very difficult to pacify sort of any of them, but I think it was also the sort of powers of a certain, the sort of authority or influence of certain kind of masculine, you know, or male cultures they were not part of and they were not therefore in a sense subject to its its forces they stood their ground um they weren't worried in a sense about to put it simply not being one of the boys and i think that gave her some that gave them rather a certain kind of uh, power and certainly inner strength so you talk about then the Anyway, the, the, this idea of the gendered spheres, you know, where uh, they have in a way to claim their space or use the conventions of particular spheres then. So I'm wondering then how this idea of, of nature and landscape fits into this. I mean, what kind of gendered space is nature or landscapes? And are we talking about you know, some traditional values that are saved or is it actually the creation of something new where new values are ascribed to nature through changes in society? Uh, I mean, great, great question and very big question. Um, did they have a gendered view of, of the landscape um, of nature? I think in that hill sense of the female sphere as being one of nurture, of one and in you know I think there was a sense of the landscape itself and the countryside itself as nurturing and that if the domestic sphere according to this separate spheres thinking if the domestic sphere was a place of safety and calm um, and of you know healthy 
healthy food and healthy living um, and so on. And I think there was a way in which Hill could conceive of green space. And in this sense, I don't necessarily mean, you know, the great uplands of the Lake District. It might be local, local parks, breezy hillsides and so on. I think she could, in a sense, conceive of green space as being an extension of 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 the domestic if you like of hearth of hearth and home um and i think that's absolutely and it's certainly bound up um with her religious um sensibilities um in terms of in terms of the others i'm a bit less sure the degree to which a case can be made um in in that regard um and I think it's, I mean, certainly with Sayer, I think she was so in a sense insistent on demonstrating that she could function within, um, within, if you like, the public world, you know, of politics um, and so on, that I don't think she gave very much space to the possibility that there was something specifically gendered about her, her, her approach or that her approach reflected somehow that she was, that she was, um, a woman, and I think that's the thing that's quite complex about about both, you know, Potter, um, Sayer, and and Dower is that I don't think they did necessarily articulate themselves in those ways. I think what is interesting about them, though, is the point at which, in terms of their lives, they enter into a kind of activist. Um, mode and I'm only talking about you know a small number of women here obviously you can't sort of generalize so much on the, on the basis um, uh, on the basis of that but I think it, it it does strike me that that both Dower and Sayer both in a sense embark on full-time careers in in sort of early middle age uh, the point at which you know their children are grown up or almost grown up and I don't think that you know coincidental i mean hill and potter don't have children um hill hill never marries she has a she has a lifelong you know companion there's been some speculation about the nature of that relationship um but it's it's far from clear um and perhaps not that important um and um and um and potter you know doesn't doesn't have children doesn't which is interesting and doesn't seem to ever express any particular views on that to the best of my um, knowledge. So I don't have a clear answer to that. I think it's a very, very good question. And I think it's an important um, question. But I'm inclined to think there's something suppressed in them that reflected the context in which they worked. But I feel even though I spent quite a lot of time thinking about them, that that's very much moving into a more speculative mode. Well, you also in, in, in the book, then you're looking at them saving the countryside. So I was wondering with these four women how they would constitute the countryside. So is the countryside a, you know, you mentioned the, the, the move that happens from the agricultural landscape being the thing that they would have thought of made in some sense the countryside to our modern idea that the agriculture destroys the countryside. So it's kind of that landscape level, but but you also mentioned something about public green spaces and of course Beatrix Potter, you know, makes books and, and drawings about little animals. So, so when they say country or when you say countryside, what would they have meant by that? 
Um, I think that's, I mean, I think so. I think there's two ways of approaching that. I, I mean, I think that your initial sort of suggestion is, is, is right, that when they would think of the countryside and therefore in the, the way that I'm using it, the countryside is fundamentally a place of agriculture and the small, the small um, settlements, villages and small towns and so on that are sustained um, by agriculture. And in terms of the, and, to, and also actually, make primar primarily agriculture and then secondarily um if you like uh the 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 continue continuing forms of extraction that have their origins in the medieval and the early modern so very forms of mining and quarrying relatively small scale relatively unmechanized um, and so on. So, you know, so to take, for example, Potter in the Lake District, which is as well as being a place of sheep and cattle and so on, also slate quarrying and Dartmoor, you know, granite quarrying. Um, I think that they would have and they would have seen, excuse me, they would have seen um, forms of extraction on a on a particular scale. And I'll come back to scale in a sec as being consistent with their notion of of the countryside and Sylvia Sayer, you know, as I say, this active in the 1950s and 1960s is both a part of, but also very influenced by that strain of work that's done in the 50s and 60s that is actively thinking about how modern developments are changing the countryside and in particular about the scale um, of modern developments and there's a whole discussion in Britain about the degree to which the which the demands being made you know on the countryside being made by large metropolitan um, centres are are placing demands on the countryside that are out of scale with the existing rural aesthetic so in order to integrate new infrastructure into the countryside you have to in a sense remodel it on a, on a grander scale. If you read people like Sylvia Crow and so on, who's an architect um, in, in this period, um, she, she, a landscape architect, she writes very explicitly about the problems of scale and the problems that scale pose to, especially the English and Welsh, you know, countrysides, reservoirs, large scale forestry, power stations, all of that sort of stuff. There's a sense in which the urban demands on the rural are changing the scale um, of, of, if you like, rural industry and and so that aesthetic conflict starts to change the very the countryside itself and invites a new countryside but i think for my four i don't think any of my four had to go that far uh, they were you know sayer and dower i don't did want to see the remodeling of the countryside on the new scale demanded by modern infrastructure they wanted to see that that modern infrastructure kept out of those places that they invested most value in, which is mainly sort of upland um, national parks, which were also the places, you know, places of low agricultural value and yield that seem the obvious places to put these, these things. And that's one of the tensions that runs, you know, runs through um, it all. So I think their version of the countries and, and then tied in with that, that, um, that notion of what the countryside is, um, I suppose was also that, sense of the diminishing distinctiveness of rural and urban and this is very much part of a kind of mid-century debate in Britain about about landscape and development is the blurring you know the blurring of 
the blurring of the two. So you get, you know, architectural writers in the post-war period. What they want to see is basically compact, high-density urban developments that, you know, and they're very often looking to continental Europe for examples of this, that 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 distinguish clearly between rural and urban. And sometimes this comes out in sort of a pettiness, you know. I mean, Beatrice Potter hated, loathed red roofed bungalows, which uh, she saw as she saw as, you know, as enormously diminishing, um, you know, the, the 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 Lake District, you know, that she loved. And this goes back to Wordsworth writing in the early 19th century. You know, the, the second homeowner is not a new thing, uh, not a new problem in terms of this 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 kind of politics. So there's a long kind of answer there that is about agriculture, that is about extractive, extractive industries on a certain kind of scale. Um, um, it, which they saw as being endangered by both the blurring of the rural urban and the new scale of, of, mod, of, of modern infrastructure. All right, let's open for some questions from the audience. So, Ellen, you had a question. Hi. Um, yes, Matthew, I was curious, this book seems like such an interesting blend of quartz and feldspar and then your sort of family memoir biography and i was curious what writing this one was like um yes yeah, so there isn't the family biography just in terms of biography versus sort of institutional regional history not the content sorry oh no sorry okay uh that's what was it like to write it um yeah, I mean, there, there are various ways, there were various challenges in terms of writing this book. I mean, I, I should say it's, you know, it's not, it is a work of historical research, but it's not presented with all of the formalities, if you like, of a historical um, monograph. So, for instance, it has a fairly sort of short and I'd hope reasonably sort of punchy introduction. That's what I was trying to do in any case. What, what that introduction doesn't do is provide you with a, a kind of complex historiographical um, um, framing. Um, and, you know, the, the historiography is in the book, but it's not. It's not foregrounded um, in that way. And where I found that challenging um, to write, um was i suppose particularly when i was writing about hill and potter but for two different reasons is because i was very very conscious of my debt to existing writers so in the case of hill i was very conscious of my debt to some really great you know work that's come out of what you broadly think of i suppose as victorian studies and century history um and then with potter i was very conscious of my debt to linda lear's um, biography and many of you probably know Linda Lear maybe more for her biography of Carson than uh, Potter but the Potter biography is, br is a brilliant but this brilliant large-scale you know 600 page biography a classic if you like of the genre and and here I am trying to talk about Potter in you know 30,000 words or something and I so I found I found I found like I found demonstrating my debt to these works whilst at the same time not constant burdening the text with you know references to the quite challenging it's the footnotes are there don't worry um, it's all there in the footnotes um, but I, I was conscious of the way in which the Quartz and Felspar the book about Dartmoor was very very much 
built from the ground up on archival um, material where I just felt entirely comfortable as a historian, I'm putting this together, um, I'm building this up. Whereas there's no doubt there's aspects of this book which are, are strongly dependent on an existing secondary literature and there are other, other parts of it that really aren't. And it's quite interesting as a, as a professional historian how that, that kind of, yeah, created a certain amount of anxiety um, in me as a writer. And I had to remind myself that, you know, somebody like Octavia Hill has been written about a lot and will continue to be written about. And, and you know, popular biographers don't worry too much about these sorts of things. And I had to sort of, in a sense, overcome a certain sort of scrupulousness, I think, in order just to get the words onto the page. Um, so there was that. Um, and in terms of, and, and yeah, I suppose, and I'm not sure I entirely succeeded. I think it was probably obvious to the reader is that with Hill and Potter um, you have two women who for whom there are good biographies or good modern historical biographies and for Dower and Sayer there are not and so, so I think in some ways the first two cha chapters are a bit more rounded as as lives and the second two chapters chapters three and four are a little bit more if you like looking at a succession of problems um, or a, su a succession of subjects that aren't in, and that, that aren't fleshed out in quite the same way um, as lives. And I suspect that creates a sort of a bit of an imbalance between the books. Some readers will probably prefer the first half of the book. Some readers might prefer the slightly more kind of um, um, nuts and boltsy element of the second half of the book, where there's quite a lot of detailed examination of of decision-making processes um, and, and so on. I think that's probably inevitable given that the second half of the book is also about the state. Um, and there's a whole series of different actors that have to be brought in if you're gonna make sense of what um, the two of them were doing. So, uh, I mean, it's not for me to say whether I succeeded or not in creating that, the, a, you know, a sufficiently narrative narrative, um, but I've tried to. I'm not sure that quite answers your question, Ellen, but there's some reflections on yeah, the writing of it. So your description of these, uh, you know, these larger transformations going on also resonate uh, with, with some of the work I've done on Norwegian second homes in the mountains, where uh, you have also these discussions about, you know, what do you preserve? How do you do this? How do you deal with both changes in the landscape and changes in the uses of these landscapes. And in particular, you see in Norway where a lot of the old agricultural landscapes, anyway, productive landscapes have now become leisure landscapes. But in the process of changing them to leisure landscapes, the production that shaped these landscapes, of course, disappears. So they have to find other ways to maintain them. There aren't no longer sheep grazing. So there's like trees just popping up everywhere and blocking their view and so on. So, so I'm, I'm wondering in a way how, you know, this discussion that you traces in, in, in your book, uh, how do you, have you looked at, you know, how that develops afterwards, you know, these themes, did they, uh, I mean, in a way, what was the impact uh, of, of these discussions and activities of these women? Um, I mean, what you describe in terms of Norway is, I mean, what's interesting in the, in, I think what's interesting in the UK is that, and I, and I think I'm right in saying this, happy to be corrected, but I think one of the things 
that makes the UK different from quite a lot of Europe is that the structure of land ownership and, and, and I mean, basically talking here obviously about farms, whether they are freeholds or tenanted farms, are broadly speaking sufficiently large whereby they whereby even farms that are relatively marginal in terms of production have been sustained by agricultural you know subsidies so one one of the things that's sort of that's you know one of the arguments that sometimes made about britain compared with other parts of europe is that even even small agricultural holdings are just about large enough um to be to be sustained within existing subsidy regimes and you know since brexit and so on we're wondering what happens into the future what seems likely is if smaller farms go to the wall is that the, the land will just get built up and there'll be consolidation rather than abandonment and in 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 britain there's very little very little agricultural land has been abandoned um, as a consequence of the structure of ownership and the way in which the, the, the sub subsidy works. So, for example, where you have debates around, I suppose, you know, ecological regeneration, rewilding, all of that sort of stuff, and the idea, well, it's happening anyway, because all of these little, you know, these mountaintop farms and what what have you in Italy or Spain or wherever have been, a, have been abandoned because they're just no longer economically viable. And in Britain, they've been able to hang on. And and um, and indeed, and indeed, what we've seen in in upland places is is not just that they've they've hung on, but there's also been you know we, on the one hand we say oh look this lovely traditional agricultural all the sheep aren't they gorgeous etc. But in fact, we've actually seen that process of agricultural simplification, you know, whereby farms that, for example, used to grow some of their own feed don't grow feed anymore. They graze sheep on a large amount of land and they buy in feed. Um, so you actually have forms of kind of concentration, and if you if you like the sort of you know move further towards monocultures um, in 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 the uplands, which means that kind of process you've you've talked about has only occurred when it's been a very deliberate, if you like, environmentalist move by a landowner who has you know sufficient both cultural capital and financial capital. To be able to, to sort of mobilize resources and knowledge and so on to start creating a, a, a different kind of you know agricultural landscape a more biodiverse um, agricultural landscape and you know there will be as there is in much of europe there's a you know really quite fraught debate in the uk and especially in england about you know rewilding Paul Stolley's written about this and the politics you know of rewilding and and the way in which the degree to which this is or isn't um a, a kind of form of greenwashing uh, or or actually or this is the sort of you know the future that the environment um needs and those, those conversations are taking place on an almost daily basis in the press in um social on social media um and and so on and so forth so there is and there so there is definitely a way in which um in which you know even to look at dower and sayer you know, we're historians and their, their context is such that they are, you know, they really are working and thinking in a different historical context um, in terms of sort of ecological, not just in terms of development of more sophisticated, I suppose, ecological understandings of, of landscape, but also just in the sense that things have simply changed. And, you know, that process of, um, you know, ecological, you know, decline 50 years on is greater 
um, than it was. And sometimes when I give talks, you know, to, uh, you know, not, I suppose not, you know, audiences that aren't comprised of historians, they quite often say, a question I get is, what do you think Beatrice Potter would have thought of rewilding? Um, and of course, that's kind of impossible to answer. Because, uh, we're hist- you know, that's the, that's the sort of, that's where we give our sort of historian's answer about historicization. Um, but, 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 so, gosh, I feel I've rambled a long way from your question. Um, no, but that's, but, that's quite all right. That's that's what's uh, that's what's nice about this kind of format is that you can ramble on. You can't think, hmm, what would be a Beatrix Potter of thoughts? Um, uh, and and you're right to say, well, we would have no idea. I don't think she would have any idea in that it it would be outside of the context in which she operated. Um, yeah. And in in that answer, you did bring up um, the changes in eco- ecological thinking. And so what I was yeah. wondering is for your um, for women and the context in which they operated, uh, what do you think was the relationship between, well, the countryside and what would become, if you will, the environmental movement, um, you know, from the 1970s onward? So since you kind of stop when when that mm-hmm. would happen. Uh, so what what's the relationship there? So I, yeah, so I do end the book with a fairly long sort of epilogue where I try to sort of say, well, I try to kind of summarise over about sort of 20 or 30 pages what, what, what's happened um, since 1970. And I mean, that's in a way a kind of fool's errand, but I have a crack at it. And, um, and I think there's a couple of things that, you know, I would say, so, so I, I think they are environmentalists in that they think, you know, they are they are absolutely thinking about the, the, you know, the environment. It's just their concept of the environment, I think is, I think describing them as preservationists is useful. I think it's, a, I think it, it does capture uh, their, um, their, you know, purposes. And that's for, for some of the reasons we've already, you know, um, discussed. And, and, I, and I think it is help. I think we can draw uh, a, a distinction between the, the preservationist and the conservationist, I think, you know, just definitionally, I think it's useful if we define the two. I think we can say they're preservationists. I don't think they're really conservationists as we would, you know, understand it, as I said, for the reasons that they're, they're I don't want to say they're, they're un, you know, they know their flora and fauna. They have, you know, I mean, Potter is a farmer in middle age and, and in her, you know, in her, the second half, half of her life she is a farmer she understands farming she understands the land and the the annual cycle um and 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 so off and indeed Sylvia, you know Pauline Dower you know grows up on a large agricultural estate um in Northumberland in a big house that's then and she goes to agricultural college it's then donated you know funding it's donated to the National Trust of course um and um, and Sylvia Sayer was a Dartmoor commoner um, a small-scale commoner, so that they all come out of, but they all come out of an active agricultural uh, context. Um, but I think committed to, you know, relatively small-scale um, agriculture. Um, they're also all one way or another artists. Um, Potter, obviously, an artist of genius, but the other three are all trained, and I think that's part of their their environmental perspective comes from their their training um, um, in art. So then, what comes later is Yes, the rise of a kind of conservationist thinking, the rise of a more ecological thinking, the rise of, of more global p- 
perspectives in which, of course, environmental concerns come to be conceived of as transnational and, you know, particularly around atmospheric pollution and so on, which is such a key issue in the 70s um, and 80s. And I think they thought in relatively localised terms. I don't think they were, what is it, acting locally, thinking globally. I think they were acting locally and thinking locally. Um, you know, by and large, there was a, despite the emphasis I'm placing on the kind of, I, by saying that they're modern, I, what I, I, they are defensive and they're local, but I, what I don't want to do is present them as reactionary, because I think there is this idea of the citizen at work, there's a rights-based agenda at work that I think means, frees them of the label of being, you know, reactionary, which is, they, which is very easy to kind of pin on them, but I don't think they were reactionary. They might have been snobbish, but not reactionary. Um, what they, what then, of course, happens in seventies and eighties is you get the kind of institutionalization and the professionalization, and I think this is this is particularly helpful to sort of think about what happens to the sort of Miller that Sylvia Sayer represents of uh, you know preservationist organizations, voluntarist organizations. The Dartmoor Preservation Association still exists. Many of these uh, preservationist organizations that then in the post-war period become known as amenity organizations. They still exist today, you know, they have 150 years um, of continuous um, history and they've evolved with, with the times and they've become more ecological in their thinking. But at the same time, you might say that, I think you probably argue that more influential today are things like the wildlife trusts. And, you know, the wildlife trusts, some of them are of almost a similar vintage, but, you know, they work often quite closely in collaboration with um, you know, with universities, with professional ecologists and conservationists and so on, whether employed by university, by state agencies um, and so on. And the preservationists are, are in a sense, more, more marginal than they, they, they were in that, you know, they, they remain in a sense wedded to this sort of voluntarist, non-professional um, activist cadre that I think is quite distinct from the institutionalized professionals that make waves today. I think it's very striking, for example, in, in the in the debates about um, post-Brexit agricultural support, and there's a long story to be told about, about that, that those, there was a highly professionalist conservation lobby engaging with that process seeking to have the you know legislation um amended and, and working broadly speaking within a framework set by government because that's the only way they what they could hope to improve the government's legislation strengthen aspects of it not fundamentally challenge it and I, and so so you have this you know a situation now where in a sense we have the the, the professionals that are part of a policy making cadre of one sort or another and then outside of them are in a sense the descendants of people like Sylvia Sayer, who are still largely voluntarist and sort of petitioning and shouting and writing pamphlets and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so, so I think they've been sort of marginalised by this sort of professionalisation, institutionalisation, which has occurred since the, the 1970s. It got to yeah, an answer in the end. Yeah, and I think Micah, um, you know, brought up in the chat that that when people in the US have a very specific historiography of, of preservation versus conservation about forestry, for example, should you just set it aside or should you 
use it um, in a, yeah, they would call it wise use uh, way so that it can continue to be used. Um, whereas that, that particular dichotomy doesn't apply elsewhere or it doesn't end up used that way. And of course the word conservation then even within the American context changes um, to align with kind of environmental conservation, which often doesn't have to do with use, but it has to do with, well, preservation. So it's one of those words that, that's very yeah. funny. So, um, so she made a note that uh, there's some kind of, you know, her question was, is there a distinct then English preservation that these um, women are operating under? You know, idea of, of preservation that is, you know, saving um, yeah, maybe different than those other contexts. So, well, this is—I mean, this is a way where I maybe need your help. But um, I think the answer would be yes, broadly speaking, in terms of how um, the—you know—there there isn't in a, in a in a UK and certainly in in an English context the sense that there is out there a pristine wilderness. What what there are is is you know landscapes with a long deep history of settlement and of of farming now i know you know the the the, the idea of the pristine wilderness of course we know is as much in a sense of fiction in many u.s contexts as it is as it is you know as it as it would be to claim of it of, of the uk but of course how it's you know presented in in particularly in the public sphere and indeed particularly in the period that i mainly focused on um i mean nobody's making those claims particularly in 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 england the, the, the you know the 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 wildness of of the country is you know relative to, you know the lake district or it's the peak district relative to you know the cotswolds but when people are using terms like, you know, wild or 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 natural, it's in a strictly kind of um, you know relativist mode in which it's recognised that all of these landscapes are created, broadly speaking, by by farming, you know, by agriculture. That's that's recognised in a sense, and it's not almost in a sense, it's not in a British context a clever thing to say that well, wilderness doesn't exist because it's never really been claimed that it that it does in the kind of modern period. And so I think that's where it's such an, you know, and it is, it is, I think it is fairly anomalous, you know, that we have national parks, which are basically, you know, agricultural landscapes to which a higher bar is set in terms of land, in terms of planning, <laughs> um, you know, in terms of what the owners are allowed to do to those, to those, you know, landscapes. And indeed, one of the debates that runs through this period, and, you know, first class, it seems quite technical, but it's obviously fundamental, is the pressure for environmentalists to have agriculture brought within the planning system. So, you know, so one of the things that starts to happen in a way that's I guess is starting to move out beyond that preservationist kind of agenda that I've been talking about here, is 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 that sort of a new a new generation of environmentalists are saying, how is it that we, how is it that a farmer has to apply for planning permission to build a large barn, but they don't have to apply for permission to plough a field that's never been ploughed before or to, you know, clear fell some, you know, woodland. And those protections exist 
in particular cases where, you know, the provision for protecting exists, but it's not a blanket protection. Um, and so you can bring about very significant agricultural change with virtually no input, with no almost regulatory sort of um, input. And, that's, and that becomes a really tense issue um, in, this, in this period. So, you know, that thing about distinct uh, Michael said, you know, obvious questions. <laughs> I mean, it's not an obvious question. I think it's 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 one of those, exactly one of those things that means that historians, without checking these terms, can so easily talk across each other. Uh, we think we're talking about the same thing. Um, but as soon as you start talking about national parks in the UK and making almost any international context, um, comparison, we're talking about this sort of rather odd, odd form. So I wanted to sneak in a last question before we have to wrap up, because uh, you'd mentioned uh, this idea of citizens and rights, uh, and I actually yeah. in the beginning too, and I wanted to ask about it. Uh, so with this idea of citizenship, you often talk not only about rights, but also about responsibilities. So could you come with some examples of rights and responsibilities that were invoked and were some of them particularly controversial uh, at the time, or there was actually like public debate uh, where your women were significant actors. Yeah, I, I, I mean the obvious, the obvious responsibility-based side of this is, behave, is is how how one should behave in the in in the countryside and and you know appropriate forms of of, of behaviour. And quite a lot of historians have written about this in in a, in a British context and thought about um, the way in which perceptions of good and bad rural pursuits are just very strongly predicated on a whole set of kind of class-based um, ideas. And, you know, there's a very interesting, you know, debate and indeed forms of activism going on at the moment in the UK about, about race, gender and access to the countryside and so on. In terms of the four women um, that I look at, I mean, in a way they are very typical of, of, of the period that generates the country code. Um, in you know in the post-war decades, a set of kind of ways of conducting yourself within the countryside um, that you know that is, is is absolutely about good behaviour. Where I think the person who thinks most interesting about this comes back to Octavia Hill, who the more time the more time I but not only spent working on her and the other four, but also talking about her is just realising how she's the origin of so much. And she writes a really, really interesting um, essay about that, that talks about the bank holiday crowds going off to Epping Forest, which is uh, kind of north, northwest you know, of London. And at that point, to get to um, Epping Forest, you would have traveled through a kind of semi-suburban, semi-rural you know, rural landscape, but the railways and so on were reaching those, those places. And, and the bank holiday is also a relative novelty this you know day off day off extra day off work um and 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 she addresses directly her basically her middle class readers and what she's tried to, what she tries to help her middle class readers to see and she uses the phrase imaginative sympathy is that she's she's trying to help them to see how the forms of behavior that they don't like very much drunkenness ribald jokes rowdiness what all of that sort of stuff. She said that we've got, we, the middle classes, have got to see beyond these sort of superficial, you know, behaviours that we don't really like, and we wouldn't like to be part of those crowds. I mean, you know, this is her speaking. 
Um, and we've got to see through how actually this the the the, the negatives are of relative relatively superficial significance. The positive and the thing we've got to think about is why when people have time off, do they head for green spaces? Why do they head for the woods? Why do they head for the fields? What what fundamental need is being um, expressed here? We, the members of the middle classes, this is Octavia Hill, not me, we, you know, conduct ourselves in this way and in our, our genteel pursuits and self-improvement and all the rest of it. And sure, they there's too much booze, and she does say this, there's too much drinking and there's, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And there's there's she doesn't really like the crowds and she doesn't really like, you know, the, the, the bad behaviour. Um, but where she's, I think, incredibly progressive in her thinking is to try to see past that and to try to see, as I say, the fundamentals, the essential, the essential human needs that are being met, you know, by this. So she's breaking down that class-based, um, if you like, barrier that is that ca- that can only see apparently bad behaviour rather than the the, the, the fundamental needs being um, being answered and the urges and so on so I think so I think that's one way in which um one way in which we see on the one hand a certain and this is in Hill and it's in all of them a desire to regulate regulate behavior in the post-war period as it is elsewhere it's all about motorists and mass tourism and so on and how do we manage the crowds of people who are in a sense responding to those same things that Hill identified in the 1870s and 1880s. Why, when people have a few days off, do they want to go and sit by Lake Coniston and drink some lager? You know, why not? But um, but if lots and lots of us want to do that, we've got to figure out some way of, you know, of, of managing that so it's not yeah. destructive. So and are we coming to the end of our round? And that's, of course, why you need um, the women who save the countryside. Um, so um, to, to both uh, save it for people and from people, both at the same time, maybe. Um, Absolutely. So we want to thank you, uh, Matthew Kelly, um, who came today to talk about the women who saved the English countryside, um, which is out with Yale University Press. So thanks to all of our audience members as well. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening.